Thanks for listening to the Mornings with Carmen LaBerge podcast, made available thanks to support from listeners just like you. Helping you wake up, remembering this is our Father's world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. If we're going to fly, we fly like eagles. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Huh, it's Monday, January the 22nd. I can hardly believe that that is the case, that we are already this far into 2024, but we are. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We are seeking to bring the mind of Christ to bear on the matters of the day. Um, one of the things that we talk about every single day is where in the word are you? So where in the word are you today? The text line is open, 877-933-2484. Maybe you have been wondering what God wants to do with your life. Have you ever wondered that? Are you wondering it today? What does God really want to do with my life? Maybe you've been wondering about your purpose. Not only what God wants you to do, but who God wants you to be, how God wants you to live. Well, I got good news for you today. God has literally already told us what he wants for each of us and all of us. God's already told us what he wants to do with our lives. So our Growing Your Faith verse of the day comes from Micah 6.8. And as soon as I say Micah 6.8, those of you who have been walking with Jesus for some period of time probably know this as a memory verse because this is um, one of those, you know, crocheted onto pillows, written into all kinds of greeting cards, Um, on placards. And I mean, this is one of those sort of go-to verses. So Micah 6, 8, if you're new in your walk of faith, this is a good one. The Lord has told you what is good. The Lord has told you what he requires of you. To do what is right, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Now you have uh, likely memorized Micah 6, 8 out um, out of a translation of the Bible, out of a version of the Bible that's slightly different than that, um, God has told you what he requires of you. To do right, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. That's it. The question is not, what does God want me to do? We actually already know the answer to that question. The question is a question of the will. Will we do it? So God has already revealed his will. His will is that you and I would do right, that we would live in righteousness, that we would love and show mercy every time, all the time, that we would walk humbly with God all the time, everywhere. That's, that's God's will. He's already told us what is good, what he regards as good. And by the way, God is the one who gets to determine what is good and what is not good. So the question is not, what does God want me to do? The question is a question of the will. Will we do it? Will we do what is right every time, all the time, no matter what? Will we love mercy every time, all the time, refusing to pick up offenses from other people, refusing to become jealous or enraged or seek retribution or revenge? 
Will we, will we, a question of the will, will we love mercy all the time and every time, no matter what? And will we walk humbly with God everywhere, all the time, every step? Will we? It's a question of the will. It's not a question of knowledge. It's not a question of revelation. God has already revealed it. The question is a question of the will. Will we? Will we walk with God and will we walk humbly with God? Doing what is right and loving mercy and walking humbly with God requires that we become disciples, students, lifelong learners under the yoke of Jesus. That's, um, that's a part of this conversation today because Jesus is righteous. He is the one who is fully right with God. He is the one who is without sin. And so Jesus reveals what is right, what a right relationship with God looks like. And Jesus also demonstrates what doing right looks like. Jesus also shows us, reveals, what, what it looks like to love mercy and to love with mercy and to mercifully love. Jesus shows us what it looks like in a human life at every moment, in every circumstance, with all kinds of people, to love mercy and to show love and mercy and merciful love. And yes, Jesus certainly shows us, reveals what it looks like to walk humbly with our God. Jesus is God, but Jesus, God in the flesh, shows us what it looks like to humble ourselves before the will of the Father. I only do what the Father um, tells me to do, Jesus says. Jesus goes to the Father frequently, seeking his counsel, his will. Jesus didn't come to do his own thing, to make his own way in the world. Jesus came to show us the Father and to make a way for us home to him, to show us the Father's love, to show us what righteousness, a righteous heart, a righteous mind, a righteous life looks like. The Lord has already told us what is good. The question is not, what should we do and how should we live? The question is whether or not we desire to be good and to do good. It's a question of the will. Will we? Psalm 23 reminds us that goodness and mercy are going to follow us all the days of our life if, if we are living as sheep of the Good Shepherd. Are there going to be dark valleys? Yes. Will some of them be deep? Yes. In those dark valleys, will we do what is right? Will we love mercy and will we walk humbly with our God? Will we? Will there be enemies? Yes. When we encounter them, will we do what is right? Will we show mercy? Will we continue to walk humbly step by step with God? Will there be times that our cup overflows? Yes, praise Jesus. In those days, we're going to be tempted to imagine that we did this and we deserve this. So will we do what is right and extend mercy to others who have less than we do and continue, continue to walk humbly with our God? Micah 6.8 is about righteousness, it's about goodness, it's about mercy, it's, hu- it's about humility, and it is about walking with God. Micah 6.8, the Lord has told you what is good and what he requires of you, to do what is right, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. The question is not, do we know what God wants of us? The question is a question of the will. Will we do it? Do you like God? Like, do you like him? Is God likable? 
Do you even really know what God is like? We're going to get to know God a little bit better by um, talking about God's attributes. Maybe someone you know doesn't like God, and maybe it's because they don't really know what God is like. Our friend Dave Buring is going to join us next. We're going to begin to explore the attributes of the character of God. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. Thrilled to have back with us today, Dave Buring from lionshare.org. You may not know that um, Dave offers up daily devotional content, um, and we're going to talk about that today. Dave, welcome back to Mornings with Carmen. Hey, good morning. So apparently, over the course of a year, um, I could reflect with you on 101 aspects of God's nature, character, and attributes, um, two minutes a day, video devotions that I can access anytime, anywhere. Tell us about this, because this is real. This is a great gift. Yeah, thanks, Carmen. Yeah, uh, um, backdrop of this story is, um, let me just think here, 2017 hit 40 years in ministry for me. And there's a little courtyard we have here in our home, and I was sitting out there on that day. I kind of mark that day in September of each year and just thank the Lord for what I've learned and what he's done. And and I was sitting there thinking, okay, this is 40 years. What is the number one thing that I learned? And so I started, you know, gathering some key things. And and to be honest, what what popped out at the top was this. The image of God that people carry around inside of them affects how they live their daily lives. Mm-hmm. And that just, you know, that's been something I've watched for for many, many years. I guess I can say decades now. And and so you know, this is, we see this in the Garden of Eden, where where the, the first kind of mention of the serpent or Satan there was, did God really say? He's questioning God in his character. And so out of that um, moment, I started praying about it. And in 2018, I made a decision to begin to record what you talked about, kind of two minute. I thought, what can people handle? And so there's 101 attributes of God's character, two minutes a day. So you know, we cover them three or four days each. So the mercy of the Lord, the justice of God, his faithfulness. And the heart behind the whole thing is I want people to have a more biblical understanding of who God's like. Because I think, like, if we can put it in our human terms, I think he can feel misrepresented. Like, like mm-hmm. I'm not like that, you know? Totally. And, and so, you know, so the, the place that we have to go to is scripture. So all of these devotions are, I just take literally a scripture portion, share a thought from it, help bring application to it. And so, yeah, if you go through it in a year, you hit 101 attributes of God's character. And that includes a leap year like this year, which is God's humor on February 29th. Mm, so good. God's humor is a good one. Um, if you and I are representing or representing God in the world today, then we need to know that we have an accurate representation of God, um, an accurate yes. image of God in our mind. So if yes. you're listening right now and you're saying, well, how do I know if the image of God that I'm carrying around in my mind, which affects everything about my life and witness, how do I know if that's accurate? Well, one of the reasons that Dave and I are having this conversation today is so that you can test the image of God that you have in your mind um, against what Scripture actually says, what God actually says about himself in terms of his attributes, his nature, and his character. So, Dave, let's um, let's look at one of them. Um, Jesus says at the, uh, just before the Great Commission, you know, all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. All authority. Um, when I think about the 
various authorities in my life or whether or not maybe I am the primary authority, like I'm actually the one who gets to choose. It's, um, you know, this is a life of choices. Um, this is a good conversation for us to have. Um, am I living as a person under authority? What does that mean? Could you take us a little bit into the conversation about authority? Yeah, I I think, you know, so let me just back up a minute, Carmen, on this. One of the things that I see is a lot of us been have been hurt by authority figures in our lives. Oh, I, see, I that's good. That authority I, figures. I hadn't thought about it that way. That's so good. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, it's it's just one of those things. I don't know that I've ever met a person that hasn't been wounded by somebody in authority, whether it's you know, by accident with mom and dad or purposeful, or it's a, a coach or it's a teacher or it's a pastor, or youth pastor, or, you know, it's a police officer. I mean, we could go on and on. Um, and again, whether it was done purposely, not on purpose, just the space that both people were in at the moment. But here's what happens is we tend to carry that hurt inside of us and it automatically reflects upon other authority figures, meaning I'm not going to trust, you know, I'm not going to, you know, you can, you can tell, for example, when someone's been really hurt physically by authority figures, when you, when you go to hug them or they go to hug you, it's like hugging a door, you know, mm. they, they, because they're guarded and, and they should be, you know, but what happens is we translate that dynamic of authority figures, and I, I know this is not purposeful, but it's just what happens. And I've seen it over and over again. We transfer that onto God. And so however that authority figure was to us, just kind, loving, merciful, or impatient, rude, destructive in their words, we translate that to God. And that's the subtle place then in our mind of how we view him. And, you know, it's it's the kind of thing where you have to know where you are so you can start there and recognize exactly what you said as you were posing, you know, this this question to the audience, like, where are you on that? How do you see God? And we may have some of our dear listeners today that that they've they haven't realized until this conversation that they have put on God everything that has been negative about authority figures in their life. And that's why they're not seeing him for who who he is and 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 understood then why you wouldn't want to follow him. Okay, um, that's really helpful. Um, that's not what I was thinking when I was lifting right. up Jesus as the person who has all authority. Like, I am so comforted by that. I am so encouraged by the reality that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus because that, I feel like, gives me um, a right perspective on people who are in positions of authority and myself as a person who is in some relationships um, in a position of authority because I'm always subject to Christ, um, and everyone else is subject to Christ as well. So, see, I have this different perspective on that. Maybe that's what you're trying to get us to look at. Um, is there a is there a passage of scripture? Is there a story where Jesus um, exercises or demonstrates authority um, that might help us gain an accurate perspective on this? Yeah. Um... One of my favorite portions to read in Scripture is Matthew 8 and 9, because it's, I think, um, the writer, Matthew, who's one of Jesus' disciples, is actually being purposeful in helping Jewish people who would have been the original audience of this understand the authority that Jesus has. And so, you know, he starts with this, you know, girl being restored from this ruler that comes and kneels before Jesus and says, hey, my, my daughter has just died, but 
come and lay your hand on her and she will live. I mean, this is an amazing thing that this guy has heard about Jesus, knows, and, and Jesus walks in and heals her. And then, you know, and then it says from there, he passes two blind men and, you know, asks them if they, you know, want to see. They do. He lays his hands on them and, and they can see. So we're seeing he has authority, not only over blind eyes to make them see, but he's got authority over death. Then he runs into a, uh, a man who is unable to speak and causes the guy to speak. I mean, it, mm. the, this, this chapter, it just keeps on going from the leper to the, the centurion, you know, back in chapter eight and the ongoing healing of many. And then Jesus, he, he's walking on the water, or, or in this case, it's really the story of him in the boat and the storm. And, and Matthew shows how it's not only physical stuff, but it's the demonic realm and then the natural realm. Like he stops the storm. And, you know, the disciples. Who is this? Like, that's the what yeah, exactly. like, who, who yeah, exactly. is this? Like, who is this? That has authority over the wind and the waves. You know? Yeah. Exactly. And, and then, you know, he runs into two guys who have demonic issues, if we can put it that way, and he frees them. So, so Matthew shows how there's the spiritual realm he has authority. There's the physical realm that he has authority. There's, you know, the, the healing that can happen. So I, I think for me going into a year like this, it's really comforting to, for me to know he has all authority. And, you know, and, and Carmen, let's be honest, what that can cause people to do sometimes, though, is all right, so if he's got all authority, then why is he allowing this to happen? Well, then that's a whole mm. other conversation about sin and selfishness and free will and all that kind of stuff. The mm. thing I think that's important to recognize is that Jesus has all authority. He's able to do anything and can do it. And that's a place that needs to be a good place for our soul. All right, we got to take a very brief break in our conversation here with Dave Buring. Um, we're talking about how we can engage um, God, the attribute, attributes and the nature and the character of God. Dave has a series of free devotionals available. If you want that link, just text me, 877-933-2484. You can also find it at lionshare.org. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge, host of Mornings with Carmen. How good are you? You feeling good? You doing good? God is good all the time. And all the time, God is good. Goodness is the character of God and the work of God, but we don't always feel so good, do we? I mean, are you good? You feeling good? You doing good? Maybe you have a sense that you need some healing, that you desire some wholeness. Our friend Susie Larson has a new book, Waking Up to the Goodness of God, 40 Days Toward Healing and Wholeness, and we'd like for you to have a copy. Faith Radio is giving away 100 copies of Susie's new book, and we'd like for you to have one. So enter to win yours now at MyFaithRadio.com. We want to know the goodness of God all the time. Connecting Faith to Life, Faith Radio. Continuing our conversation with Dave Buring about um, free devotionals that are available to you so that you can uh, connect with what God has said about himself, revealed about his character, his attributes, and his nature in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments. Um, because what we think about God, the image of God that we're carrying around in our minds, that affects everything, and it affects every relationship, um, and it certainly affects our ability to accurately 
represent or represent Jesus in the world today. So one of um, the conversations that we're going to be having this year here in the United States of America is a conversation about about governance and government. And we've Mm -hmm. just come off of Christmas where you likely heard this passage from Isaiah chapter 9. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You've enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing their plunder. Uh, As for the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the the rod of their oppressor, every warrior's boot. It goes on and on and on. Because in in verse 6, it picks up with this. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and of his peace, there will be no end. So, Dave, let's reflect on um, governance and government with this in view. Um, Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. The government rests on his shoulders, and of his rule there shall be no end. It doesn't feel like that on a lot of days. No, it does not. And and I think it's important when we talk about these these attributes of God's character, when you deal with King of Kings, Lord of Lords, Mighty God, you know, um, this whole area of the government being on his shoulders and it will have no end. It, it, it's important for us to realize, like, what what is he the governor over? You know, we have governors of our states here in our country. We have mayors of our communities. But like, what does he govern over? And the thing we have to keep coming back to is this is another thing that points us back to the kingdom of God. Like there is actually this space, this very real space that God wants us to live in here on this earth. And then again, in heaven, you feel the fullness of it, but it's called the kingdom of God. And Jesus rules over the kingdom of God. And it tells us here that, you know, the government shall be upon his shoulders, like the the you and I, when you give our lives to Jesus, become citizens of the kingdom of God. And the government of that kingdom rests on his shoulders. He carries the weight of it. He carries, if we want to say it this way, human way, the burden of it. He he is the one that is capable to do that. And it also tells us, as you read, the increase of his government and his peace. I like how that tags t- tag teams, the 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 increase of the government and peace, there will be no end. Because in his kingdom, Carmen, when we walk in this, we are supposed to be operating out of peace. And like, just throw that into the world that we're living in now. And um, the reality is, is he wants us to operate out of peace with inside of us, with each other, in our relationships, in our families, and what we do in our vocations. And only when we recognize that we have a king who operates out of love and mercy and justice and faithful, perfect love, mercy, justice, faithfulness, can we experience peace? And the good news for us is those who follow Jesus, the increase of his government peace, there will be no end. It will continue. And and right up until the time we're in heaven and feel the fullness of it. I love that I have a role in the government of the kingdom of heaven. Like I, I just, I have so appreciate that I am an ambassador of the king and the kingdom. Like, if you've ever wondered, do you have a position, an appointed position, in the government uh, over which Jesus reigns and is king forever and ever? Yes, you do. And you are an ambassador 
And that means that in the midst of the kingdoms of this world, under whatever form of government I happen to be living, in whatever time or place, I I bring the kingdom realities, the 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 person of the king and the realities of his kingdom. I bear witness to those in the midst of every kingdom under every form of government in the here and now. That's yeah. so cool. Yeah, it is very cool. And, you know, he delegates roles to us. And again, going back to some of your opening comments uh, today, like, I think something that's really important for us as we begin a year is, is like with the devotionals, it's, it's reorienting to a more biblical understanding of God that's the most important thing for our relationship with him. But the second one, it's a 1A and 1B for me, Carmen. And the 1B is we're supposed to be reflecting him perfectly. Of course not. There's all We're never going to reflect God perfectly ever. However, the gist of it, the sense of when people are with you, do they get a little taste in their mouths of what God is like? Because you were extra patient. You were gracious. You quickly forgave. You know, you were kind. Um, you initiated, um, you know, mercy when nobody else has. And and I think that's the thing that is really important. And this is not a performance. It's not, okay, i got to walk out of the door today, and I've got to think about doing these. It's, yes, set our hearts, but the reality is it's the Holy Spirit within us that empowers us to do this. He's the one that just lets it naturally flow from us. And then it's sometimes after the fact you realize, wow, God, you poured yourself through me in that way of kindness to that I just was not expecting. But you were obedient to him in the moment to do what he asked you to do. And that helps you fall in love with Jesus. That helps your worship life go to another level because you can say, thank you that you used me. And thank you that I saw the kindness of your character exude out of my life to touch somebody else. That That's what it's supposed to look like. That's so great and so helpful. Dave, thank you um, for this conversation today. Blessings on you as you carry on the work that God has prepared in advance for you to do. Um, If you'd like to download the LionShare Leadership app, you can do so um, free at lionshare.org. That's where you're going to access these free two-minute daily video devotions. I can send you a direct link. Just text me 877-933-2484. Up next, we're going to talk with our friend, um, Adam Carrington. We're going to jump into um, some of the things that are going on in the world. Let's hit a couple of headlines before we um, before we bring Adam on. Um, maybe you already know this. Maybe you're already privy to this. Um, but on the Republican side of the uh, primary process, the Florida governor, Ron DeSantis, has announced that he is ending his 2024 White House campaign, and he has endorsed former President Donald Trump. So really, um, that means that the race is down to two people, um, Donald Trump and former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley. Um, so there you go. Um, this is also the anniversary. This today marks the 20, I don't know, 20, uh, 51st. <laughs> That's bad math right there. Marks the 51st anniversary of Roe v. Wade. And um, the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. Uh, You know that. You're full aware of that. The March for Life was definitely um, impacted by the reality that the abortion conversation in the United States has really radically and robustly changed. Um, And yet, and yet, 
a million abortions, um, right out a million abortions took place in America last year. And right out a million abortions will likely take place in America this year. You are going to see and hear a ton of um, ad advertisements, um, brief advocacy pieces, particularly in battleground states, um, because for the Democrats, abortion um, is the big issue on the ballot. Um, You are going to see and be exposed to stark emotional testimony from women who, you know, say that um, their state's abortion bans um, have negatively affected them because, quote unquote, they were forced to have a baby. No one's forcing anybody to have a baby. Um, you are you are pre-deciding. Um, and I recognize that there are um, a a few instances where rape or incest produces a child. And I recognize that those are conversations that we must have as a, a culture that is so depraved and where sin is so rampant. Um, I also recognize that the word choice is, is relevant in this conversation for a reason. And it's because women are making a choice. And so um, let me just really encourage you to pre-decide pre-decide not to have sex because sex produces babies. Um, And so you need to pre-decide if you are not in a position to have care for and raise a baby in the context of a home where there is a father and a mother, then you need to pre-decide not to have sex because sex produces babies. Um, And babies are a gift of God. And so you're going to hear a ton of campaign ads this year on this topic and I want you as a Christian to be really mindful that we are pro-life from conception to natural death. And so once a baby is conceived, that is a baby that we as Christians um, believe God has given. And so um, let's pre-decide. Let's not be people who, you know, well, we're going to think about having a baby after there's already a baby. No, no, no. We're going to pre-decide. And we're going to have pre-decision conversations with our friends and neighbors. And yes, those conversations are hard to have, but those are the conversations we're going to have this year. Uh, Dr. Adam Carrington is going to join us next. You've heard the phrase, a city on a hill. Where does that come from? What does it mean to be a city on a hill? What does it mean in the Bible? What does it mean when it's used in the context of our American discourse today? And what does America need to learn if we're really going to be a city on a hill? That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. You have heard the United States of America referred to as a city on a hill. Certainly, if you've been around since the days of Ronald Reagan, you um, you have heard it. Maybe you have heard it in uh, used in a recent uh, political debate. Um, yeah, is it just a turn of phrase? And if America really wants to truly be a city on a hill, what do we need to learn? Dr. Adam Carrington is joining us from Hillsdale College. Good morning, Adam. Good morning, Carmen. How are you? Well, I am well. It's uh, a lot of snow on the ground where I live, which is unusual, um, but not unusual for where you live and not for most of our listeners. So, you know, do we talk about the snow just because it's unusual where we live or we just keep it to ourselves? (laughs) I I, I think it's fine to talk about it. And we've been talking about 
the fact that the uh, we haven't gotten above freezing temperatures in in over a week. I think tomorrow we mm-hmm. might finally do that. So we're having the thing that doesn't happen every year, but often happens where it's it's not that you have any huge snows, but the old snow never melts before there's more. So you, you start to doubt whether there's still grass underneath it all. Mm-hmm. Our, um, there is grass. I have uh, I have seen evidences of it um, around the edges. Um, but uh, we also have like periodic layers of ice mixed in with our snow. So it's going to be fun. It's just going to be, you know, it's fun times had by all. Schools have been out here for a week. They're still out because we don't have any way to deal with it. None of it. Anyway. Yeah. And yeah. and if anyone so tells you, you that yeah, if anyone tells you they know how to drive in snow, okay, mm-hmm. that's doable. If anyone says they know how to drive in ice, that's just a lie. That uh, you, you don't you don't drive in ice. It's it's just it's just bad regardless. So yeah, that's way worse than snow as far as at least trying to travel. Yeah, it's very it's very exciting. It's very slickery where I live. It's very exciting. Um, all right, let's uh, let's talk about this piece that you have posted, um, uh, published at WashingtonExaminer.com. To be a true city on a hill, America needs to learn the true meaning of liberty. Maybe we better circle uh, back first and talk about where the phrase "a city on a hill" comes from. Right. It, it originally comes out of the Bible, uh, Matthew's Gospel, Jesus's Sermon on the Mount. And he talks about a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. In other words, by being up on a hill, it can be seen, it can be observed, it can be known, it can make itself known and what it's about known. And he meant it more about the church, Mm -hmm. that the church will be the city on a hill. Now, what's interesting is it has, um, you know, there is a, a, a history of America of uh, uh, taking biblical metaphors and and uh, adopting them. Uh, Abraham Lincoln, a house divided against itself cannot stand, and then applying it to America in the American context. In, in our context, we first had a man named John Winthrop, who was a old Puritan who helped settle uh, Massachusetts originally, who talked about the new colony would be a city on a hill. Now, he was thinking that it would be both a church and a state at the same time. So he was kind of pulling the metaphors together. And then where it's really become a modern usage is picking up on the political side of that. Ronald Reagan, but uh, even JFK in the 1960s, and now you hear it all the time, uh, have pulled out just the political with the idea that uh, America, by being a city on a hill, will be observed by other countries, its principles, its practices, and that if it's at its best uh, in defense of liberty, in defense of equality, in defense of the good, then that being set on a hill will uh, beam out or showcase or, 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 or dispense the principles of uh, that America stands for, uh, and if not, then then it won't. So that's sort of the the quick move of how we go from Jesus Sermon on the Mount to the 1600s to present time. How that has turned into a political metaphor about America's stance in the world, about how America's principles is seen, how America herself is seen by the rest of the world. I think it's fair to say that. Um, many people hear the phrase city on a hill um, and they don't recognize it as something that Jesus said. They recognize it as something they have heard um, said about 
America, and maybe uh, it's because they remember it from the Reagan era. But as you you know, as you point out, others use it as well. I mean, I think it's been recently used this year um, uh, during a debate. So um, if we misunderstand what it means, if we think it means everybody should look at us, um, we are the beacon of hope. Everybody should look at us and follow um, follow us in the way that we're doing things because we're better than everybody else. We're we're the city on the hill. That definitely misses the um, the original meaning from the Sermon on the Mount. Um, so, I mean, it's not about pride, and I'm not even sure it's about optimism. Um, he's talking about, you know, being blessed as as the poor and the meek and the persecuted, and so it's a. Um, I just think it's one of those times where, Adam, when we see or hear a phrase used in the public square, as Christians, it's incumbent upon us to know know what we're hearing. Like, when I hear Shining City on a Hill, um, I should think, oh, Sermon on the Mount. And then I should go reread it in the Sermon on the Mount, and then I could say, and I should say, what is it actually, what does that mean? What, is it, what did it mean? And then what does it mean? And is it being used to mean that now? Um and so I think your encouragement, you know, for us to examine this is really good. Talk with us about our need to learn the true meaning of liberty if America is going to genuinely be a city on a hill. Right. And and I think you're right that the I think the biggest pro, uh, worry about the use of city on a hill is actually that people will know just enough to think that it's equating the church and America, which would obviously mm-hmm. be a massive problem. Um, I I wrote this article because just recently was the birthday of John Winthrop, the man to first apply the city on a hill metaphor to America. Uh, you know, back when it was just a wilderness, and I I brought up that I thought that his bigger contribution wasn't the city on a hill speech that he gave or sermon that he gave. It was he gave a little what's called a little speech on liberty, where he distinguished between two kinds of liberty. One he called natural liberty, uh, and that was the liberty basically to be sinful, <laughs> to 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 be selfish, to do what you want, uh, to not follow God's rules or anyone else's rules. And he says, uh, don't think that that is the kind of liberty that any good God-honoring political community or good God-honoring individuals should should be pursuing. And he says it's actually slavery. It's slavery to your own evils. It's slavery to the evils of others. Um, and I, 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 I fear that in some ways, without uh, uh, admitting that that's all that's going on, uh, a lot of the way we talk about liberty really is this kind of the ability to do what you want, however self-destructive, however mm. destructive of others. And that that's become the definition of freedom. And and I said that Winthrop, I think, offers an alternative. He talks about civil freedom, and that civil freedom is a freedom that really is about ordering your willingly ordering your life according to God's laws, according to the good laws, not the bad, but the good laws of your community, and therefore living a life uh, connected with other things he wrote that is really grounded more in love of God, love of others real community and and that we need we have lost a bit of that understanding of liberty which is really about self-government in submission to god's laws 
uh, and that he, I think on his birthday, I was trying to say, let's call back this better understanding of liberty, this more historical understanding of liberty that I think is much not self-destructive, but really would make us a beacon uh, of showing what 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 it means to be a, a better kind of political community. Mm, that's so good. Um, well, we're going to take a very, very brief break. When we come back, um, Adam and I are going to pivot and we're going to have a conversation about Gen Z. So first of all, we'll remind ourselves, who is Gen Z? Who are Gen Z? Um, and then you may have missed it, but uh, January the 16th was actually National Religious Freedom Day. And the Beckett Fund um, explored Gen Z's very complicated and sometimes conflicting views about religious freedom. So we're going to talk about Gen Z. We're going to talk about their skepticism of religious institutions in particular um, and, and what it looks like for us as people of faith um, to, to understand what emerging generations are thinking about us um, and how our institutions can become, again, places of not just, uh, you know, information, but real formation. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Maybe you've heard that Faith Radio partners with one child to offer you the opportunity to sponsor a child living in difficult circumstances in a hard place. Well, when you sponsor a child supplying for their needs, you change a life. And when you change the life of one child, you change the world. Your one child learns that God loves them more than they can imagine and that God's got special plans for their life. Your one child gets help with school and is taught skills like leadership and how to even overcome poverty. Your one child gets nutritious food and vital medical care that can be life-saving. You might not be able to change the world, but you can, in fact, change the life of one child. Meet the kids. Find your child at MyFaithRadio.com. Dr. Adam Carrington is here with us. Adam, you and I have both read this Gen Z is Skeptical of Religious Institutions piece at Deseret. Um, what was your takeaway? What was your sense of what Gen Z is is thinking about religious institutions? Um, and then I would like for you to share your view of um, sort of the, the redemptive role that institutions play in a culture. Right. And uh, you're mentioning who Gen, Gen Z is. And mo- all of my students right now are Gen Zers. So I'm meeting every every day, talking with, working with uh, the, the, this generation, uh, as, as I know many others are. And this, this said that, uh, there's both a good and a, and, and, and a troubling part. The good part is Gen, Gen Z seems to be more open to religion or at least some kind of religion than maybe, uh, millennials or, 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 or generate Gen X in certain ways that there seems to be less of a hardening there. There seems to be an opportunity, but it is very individualized because they are very skeptical at the same time of religious institutions. So churches, parachurch organizations, uh, et cetera. And I think that 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 split between being more open to maybe individualized faith, but against institutions is uh, is, is problematic. And I think it's problematic biblically because God didn't save us into a solitary individual life of faith. He saved us into a community as part of his bride, the church. But it's because God also 
in creating us knew how we tick that um i think the problem with not having a, a strong institutional identity or connection is uh often your faith can become adrift doctrinally you're not um watching you, you don't have others that can teach and correct you uh, and guide you the way you need or mentor you uh it means that when you're struggling with doubt or with uh, physical needs or with emotional needs, uh, depression, uh, sickness, whatever, uh, you you don't have that institutional care and concern of people coming around you the same. It's just not quite as as easy to do that either. And uh, I think that it just uh, uh, it, it means that uh, Gen-, Gen Z is looking for something and they're looking for God as all mm. the way back to St. Augustine said, our hearts are restless till we find our rest in him. But they have lost sight of, and I think this is partly the fault of our culture, partly the fault of their parents and grandparents. They've lost sight of the means God has provided. In other words, God has said, I will meet you in my church. I Not that that's the only place he'll meet you, but I've promised I will meet you in my word being read in uh, uh, my word being preached, in my uh, in baptism, in the Lord's Supper, all of those things, and the Gen Z has is struggling to find God, but they're struggling because they've lost track a bit of where to look for Him, and I think that's where institutions are so important because God has promised to meet us uh, in those institutions, and God has provided other institutions like government and the family also to uh, uh, help us through life. And I think there's a larger breakdown of how institutions do that, that, that they're not seeing. Yeah, that's so good. That's so good. Adam, we got to leave it right there. That's Dr. Adam Carrington. You can find him at Hillsdale College. You can also find what he's writing, um, well, all over the place. Um, World News Group is one of the places. The Washington Examiner is um, is another one. You can uh, connect with him maybe on Twitter, and that way you'll see all those feeds. He is Carrington AM. Um, so before we um, end the hour, I just want to talk here for a moment about the little things. You know that my word for the year is small, so I've been thinking about the little things or the things that are considered little that end up sometimes being really big things. And so I want to talk about a little thing here um, that if you are like me and you kind of ignore the safety videos when you get on an airplane. You don't actually, you know, pay really close attention to what that flight attendant is saying. You don't really believe that they're primarily there for your safety. You're, you don't pull the card out to familiarize yourself with a particular aircraft that you're on. You don't actually look behind you to see if the closest exit, you know, is behind you. Like, you, you're, you're kind of doing your own thing during that portion of the pre-flight safety demonstration. Well, I want you to um, consider just how important the in-flight safety video was um, to the hundreds of people who safely evacuated the Japan Airlines plane when it crashed upon landing um, with a plane that wasn't supposed to be on the runway where it was. Within 90 seconds, all of those people got off that plane. And the in-flight safety video is being universally praised for helping to save those hundreds of lives. So it, it may seem like a little thing. 
And maybe because it seems like a little thing, we've come to ignore it. But we ignore the little things at our peril. And so don't ignore the little things today. What are the things that you have come to ignore because, well, they seem like little things? Brushing your teeth is not a little thing. (laughs) Um, Making the bed is not a little thing. Taking the time to read the Bible and memorize a verse of Scripture, that's not a little thing. It might seem like a little thing, and so you're ignoring it. But it's not a little thing. Those people, they might seem little or irrelevant or on the periphery. There, there are no little people. There are no little things. The little things become incredibly important. Um, think about a pebble in your shoe. Um, think about um, a piece of uh, dust in your eye. Let's not ignore the little things today. Thanks for listening to Mornings with Carmen LeBurge. Podcasts like this are available because of your support. If it's important to you to hear things that encourage your faith, click the link in the show notes to give now. And thanks.